Turn with me to Genesis. So we're actually going to try and get through, and we will, two chapters, your third service. I'm keeping you as long as I need to. Um, If I get through the first two services in two chapters, I'm definitely going to do it in third service. But chapters 23 and 24, we're not going to read every single word, some 80-something verses of um, these chapters. So I really, and, and that's going to be, kind of become more common as we press through uh, to the end of the book of Genesis. So please take the time before you come in. I mean, you know where to start reading next week. Uh, you know, we finished 24 here, so you know where to pick up. And read ahead. I'll give you, we'll read enough. We'll see the highlights of these passages to be able to really get the story and uh, to walk away with it. But in these two chapters, we're going to see uh, Sarah fade off the scene, and she passes away. Abraham wanting to bury his wife, but doesn't even own an acre of land in the promised land to be able to bury his wife and that what needs to transpire for that to take place. And then how he sends Eliezer, his faithful servant, to go and to find a bride for his son Isaac. So let's go ahead and begin reading. We'll begin in chapter 23. We'll read a handful of verses there, beginning at verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, and the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you this burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke to them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, and all who entered the gates of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered to Abraham, saying, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he named in his hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So they, he's got to go buy a piece of land. And what, what begins is a typical negotiation. Listen, I've got to buy a piece of land. I'm willing to pay full price. Uh, that, no, we're not going to make you buy anything. What is that between us? We're friends. Just go ahead. You can have the land. No, I'll pay full price. Oh, you pay, pay a price? Okay, well, it's 400 shekels. I don't know. What do you think? And typically, they would begin to negotiate right there. But what do you have? You have a grieving husband who also happens to have a whole lot of money. And he's just like, 
fine, I'll pay it. Now, we don't know for certain because we're not given the boundaries and how much land. So some would say this may have been a fair price. But, you know, a fair amount of uh, scholars would say that this was a property that was priced at 10 times its value. And, you know, you may think, well, what kind of you know, guy is Ephron? Well, go easy on him because he probably was doing just what normally happens in all business transactions and negotiations. The only problem is Abraham's not negotiating. And maybe because of the sorrow, he doesn't want to get engaged in that kind of business transaction. Let's just get it done with. It may also be because he wants to pay a price so that nobody could ever come back and say that he took advantage and got it. We don't know exactly what the motivation was, but he weighs out um, a ton of money. About uh, seven and a half pounds of silver is what he's uh, paying. And um, this is, let's see what, I have somewhere here the, the customary price. Um, I think, it, yeah, I lost it. But it was about four acres per shekel of, is what the going price was. So um, if it was 10 acres, it should have been 40. So that's kind of the idea. And it's amazing, though, that here he is, been in the land for 60-plus years. His wife has died. He left the promised land to go to a land that God would show him. He's even shown him the borders of the property that one day his descendants will um, inherit and they will fill it up. He's going to have children. There will be more than the sand of the seashore and descendants more than the stars in heaven. And yet he can't buy. He doesn't have a place to, to bury his wife. He's got to buy that piece of land. And um, they're actually, to this day, you know, we still believe we know where that site is. Of course, it's not a biblical certainty, but there is a, a Muslim mosque that is um, at the site of where Machpelah was. You can put that up there if you got it. And um, it is a place where they go and they worship today. Muslims do, because Abraham's significant to them. Um, I don't know if this is true or not, or the significance, but a little fun fact they say that nobody has entered inside that cave of Machpelah since 1119 A.D. when the last crusaders went through and the Muslims got hold of this and nobody's been there. So it's still uh, in this place today. Um, so whether it is the exact one, we believe it is, but you can't say with biblical certainty. But let's just focus a little bit on this, this, this end of verse 17 and to verse 18. He says, he says, in uh, verse 17, it says, Within all the surrounding borders were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth. Meaning, he didn't have any other land. This was his first piece of the promised land that was actually his. That's a lot of faith for 60 years to wait and to trust in the Lord. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews comments about the faith that Abraham had in this regard. In verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out to the place where he, which he would receive as an inheritance, he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. So he only got this one little piece of land that is uh, bought from Ephron. And he was waiting. He was a land of promise. It wasn't a land of realization at this point. It was a land of promise. 
But he's trusting in the Lord. And he is waiting in the Lord to, to bring it about in his own time. But the writer of Hebrews says, but what he was really waiting for was for a different location. It was a city whose builder and maker is God. He was waiting for that time when he would be in the presence of the Lord in heaven. And the word that's used in verse 10 where it says he waited, this is a a, a Greek, Greek verb that actually means continual past action. So you look at your photo album, you got a picture, one snapshot, that kind of speaks of, you know, still action in the past. To illustrate that would be like if you're watching a a home family video of something of a birthday 10 years ago and the reel is moving. And that's the force of this word waited here, which I believe is theologically significant because what it means is you don't just say, oh yeah, I'm going to wait for the Lord, oh, I'm done. No, we live in that place of waiting for the promised land. The promised land for us, I mean, it's not America, it's not some other location, it is in the presence of the Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm going away to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be with me also. That's the promise of your Savior, Jesus. He's going to give you an inheritance in His, in the place that He's made that you might be with Him. And I realize that we can lose we can lose steam, and if you, especially if you're one that has, at different times, have gotten caught up in people who set dates for the return of the Lord, and you set your mind, and you get kind of excited around that, and the Lord doesn't end up coming back. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Yeah, that didn't work out so well, did it? Somebody, I guess, is saying that the Lord's going to come back by the end of this month. Well, don't get me wrong. I hope they're right. I hope they're right. I mean, you'd be home you know, by May in the presence of the Lord. I'm all right with that. But we don't know the day or the hour. And the, what happens when people begin to say things like a date or it's got to happen by this point in time. You know, there's all kinds of reasons that people give and calculations they do. What ends up happening to those that really believe it and really hold on to it is when that date comes and it goes, then they're all deflated. And then it's like now there's not going to be that ongoing waiting anymore. It's like, I got burnt by that. No, you got burnt by a man. You didn't get burned by Jesus. Jesus has not burned you on that. He said, we, you don't know when. His disciples said, when are you coming back? He says, don't worry about that. Wait till you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Get on with the work. But he does want us to live in anticipation of his return. And I just want to ask you, are you waiting ongoing attitude of looking up to see the return of the Lord. If not, you need to get your eyes on on your hope. That is the believer's hope. And um, hold to that, cling to that, and allow it to have its impact upon your life. I mean, it, it has that impact of purifying us and cleansing us. Um, think about what Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So he writes to these believers, and he says, you are passing through, you're a pilgrim. What's a pilgrim? It's somebody who's on a journey to get from their home to a holy city. You are on your way to a holy city whose builder and maker is God, and you're just passing through right now. 
And you need to live like you're passing through. You need to live like you're a sojourner. You need to live like a person who does not think this is all there is. Well, I don't want to be so heavenly minded. I'm no earthly good. That person has never existed. Because to be heavenly minded is what? Well, what's the priorities of heaven? Jesus told us what the priorities were. Is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what it means to be heavenly minded. That person who's heavenly minded is going to be all kinds of earthly good. Because they're going to be looking out for their neighbor. They're going to be loving. They're going to be preaching the gospel. I mean, I think when people say this sometimes, they're thinking of that person who has their head stuck in some book and they're oblivious to the world around them that's hurting and is in pain and there's needs and they don't show kindness and they don't reach out in love. Yeah, that person. Yeah, they're, they're no earthly good, but they're not heavenly minded. They're some other kind of minded. We are citizens in heaven and we are passing through. Think about it this way. If you as a citizen of heaven who is just passing through this life, if your simple little knapsack of what you have accumulated and what you live for was all taken away, what would be left of substance spiritually in your life? So if everything else was taken away, would you have anything spiritual there? Would you have a work that you're doing in the name of the Lord? Would you have a devotional life? Would you have fellowship? Would, you have a, would worship be a part of your life? Would there be a hope and an expectation? Or would your life just kind of look like a barren wasteland of everything but that which is spiritual was taken away today? What's left behind? Because if you're like, no, there's all, I mean, yeah, that's the way it would look. Then that means that you, you're not living like a pilgrim. You got, you're carrying too much stuff with you. You have too much baggage. And we need to be those that are just passing through. Like Abraham, waiting for that city, looking for that time. And yeah, we may go through this entire life and never see the return of the Lord in our lifetime. But you know what happens when you pass in faith in this lifetime, you go to be in the presence of the Lord. You are going to end up there. So allow that to be worked into your heart and into your life. Let's move on. We're going to jump down into chapter 24 now. And here we see um, the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. And we begin reading at verse 1. Now Abraham was old. I don't know if she appreciated that. But in, in, you know she was. She was old and well advanced in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to his oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord of the God of the heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow, 
Then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So he put his hand under his thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him. This was a solemn oath. The reason under the thigh, it's a way of saying, if you don't do this, my family's going to rise up and they're going to come after you. And that's, it is a, one of the stronger oaths that could be made. He did not want Isaac up in Haran, and he did not want Isaac to take a son from among the Canaanites. And so a solemn vow is made. It seems strange to us, but it was common in their day. And so he's going to journey from Beersheba, probably around that area. We know when the servant comes back, he's coming just south of Beersheba, where Hagar had that encounter with the Lord. And he's going to travel up north, and he's going to go to Haran. You put that map up there please. And it, this is the, the journey. So he's going to go probably about 500 miles. I mean, this is going a long way to get a bride. And yet Abraham's like, you will not take from among the Canaanites. Why? Why doesn't he want him to take from among the Canaanites? Is he like, is he like a, a racist or something like that? What's the problem? What's wrong with Canaanite ladies? And it's not that at all. It, who are the Canaanites? Well, these are the people that were caught up in all the same kinds of things that were going on down in Sodom and Gomorrah and the plain of Zoar. They were the ones that were there. And that influence, we know from archaeological studies, they were caught up in all kinds of idolatry and worshiping false gods. There was all kinds of, of uh, child sacrifice and perversion. This is the group and this is the place where the Lord says, listen, I'm not ready to destroy them yet, but when I destroy them, then you're going to inherit the land. I mean, that's essentially what's happening. So God is patiently waiting. But Abraham can see this. He can see their, that they're caught up with all these other gods. And he's worshiping the one true and living God. And he doesn't want that to spread into his family. Now, in fairness, his family is not the model citizen family either, right? You know, Laban is part of this. We're going to meet Laban in this chapter. We're going to meet him later. But when Jacob goes back and he goes to get a wife and he gets a wife and he's about to leave, um, they steal the household gods and this becomes an issue. Leah steals, uh, no, Rachel steals the household gods. So he's an idolater. So it's not like this is a perfect, you know, Yahweh worshiping family that's got it all together. But I guess it was better than what was around. And so this is why that's taking place. So it's not a clear statement like it will be later in Scripture that the Israelites were to only marry those of like faith and passion, right, in, in, in the Lord. Um, Solomon fails miserably at that, and it causes for him to fall down, fall spiritually. But in the New Testament, the instruction becomes really clear. It talks about the different types of relationships that we have. And you can think about business partnerships. You can think about marriage. And Paul has something to say about how we interact with other people. First, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, down to verse 18. And it says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So believers in Jesus, not believers in Jesus. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
And the answer is none to all of them. There's nothing in agreement. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's very clear that a believer should only marry another believer. So this is clear teaching in the New Testament for us. And it's for the same reasons that most likely motivated Abraham here is we don't want our faith to be drugged down. And on top of that, when you have two people that are not equally yoked together in the same philosophy of life, the same worldview, the same kind of passion to follow Jesus, that becomes a difficult pull through life. And it becomes unequally yoked. It's like having an oxen and a you know, poor little donkey. I mean, this, that's going to be a rough pull through life. It's not going to be very effective. I know some of you are like, wow, I mean, but I'm already there. What do I do? This is what you do. You receive the grace of God. You walk in the grace of the Lord. And you seek to be the best husband and the best wife you can be. Serve that person. Show them the love of Jesus Christ. Don't let them cause your passion for Jesus to be you know, squashed. Live it out. But be a great husband. Be a great wife in those conditions. But if you're a single person, don't enter into a union with an unbeliever. Because God said so. And that's why. And if you don't like the logic of what I just went through, then let it just rest with, this is what my Lord has said. And I'll have to get more information when I get to heaven. But you're going to raise kids together. And that's going to be a struggle and that's going to be a pull. You're going to want to invest your, your money into certain things for the kingdom of God and certain, invest your time. And you're going to be excited about certain things. And now you're going to be in this place where there's a disparity between you and that will be a pull. And by the way, the person that you marry is probably the person that you have dated. I know we don't live in an arranged marriage society. Some of you have had that experience or you live, come from other countries where that was part of what happened. We read about it here. But the person you date in our culture is eventually going to be the person you marry. So if you're dating somebody that is not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're walking down a path that's going to be very difficult. Wow, I would never marry them. You say that now, but what do you say when you're in love with them? And your heart is all tied up in that. Now you have the conflict between your heart and what the Word of the Lord says. So save yourself the heartache, save yourself from hurting that person, and just wait for the Lord to bring you that person. This is what he asks of us. And so this is what's going on with Eleazar and Abraham, I believe, and why he's making him make such a vow. But in this whole scene, I want to show you a picture, I believe a typology. Just like last week, we saw Abraham taking Isaac and offering him up on Mount Moriah. That's where Golgotha is. That's where the Temple Mount is. And that, he took him up there, his only son Isaac, and he was about to offer him. The Lord stopped and said, don't do that. I will provide myself. And the Lord did provide a lamb on that same place, the Lamb of God, and he was sacrificed for our sins. And so we have a typology of Abraham and Isaac and um, and the sacrifice, and, and we have, I, I believe, another typology here. We have Abraham, the F- Heavenly Father, sending the servant, the Holy Spirit, 
to get a bride, the church, for Isaac, who is a type of the son. I want you to think about this, that the Lord has sent his spirit into this world to draw you into a relationship with him. Who are we that God would be that kind of mindful of us? That he would want to have us be a bride for his son. It's a big deal when your kids get married. It's a really big deal. You think a lot about it. And Abraham's thinking about it, and he's got some clear standards. But, but the Lord is getting a bride for his son, Jesus, and it's called the church. And you as a follower, and me as a follower, we make up that church. You should be amazed that the Lord would call you into that relationship with the Son. I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about how the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. And so if you're not familiar with that, read there in Ephesians uh, chapter 5 about that, that, that typology. So that's why I believe it fits in here. So as Eleazar goes out, he is to get a bride for um, Isaac, a picture of the Spirit who calls people into salvation and to join together with the Lord. And I don't know, maybe you're in here and you know that God has been after you for like weeks and months and years. And you sense that hound of heaven, the Lord himself, drawing you to himself. So every time you're turning around, you're meeting a Christian or something is happening and you're hearing the gospel and things are touching your heart and you're knowing you're needing to get right with the Lord. Let me just say today is your day to get right with the Lord. Today is the day to come to him and, and yield to the work of the Spirit of God. You're not just interested in the things of Jesus because you're a spiritual person. The Bible actually says otherwise. You are interested in the things of God because God is working on your heart. And he is drawing you unto himself. Be amazed at that. Be humbled by that. And repent of your sin and enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ. So we have this beautiful picture that's going on. In verses 10 through 15 of chapter 24, um, we get the prayer of Eleazar. He goes, you can tell even when he's talking with Abraham, he's a little kind of like, I don't know if this is going to work out. So he leaves in verse 10. Uh, then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all of his master's goods were in his hands, in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. So he's, he's kind of planning this out well, right? You know, he's thinking, thinking ahead of time. And then he said, or you could say he prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, let it be. So he puts, you've heard of putting out a fleece before the Lord. So now let it be that the young woman who say, please let down your, who I say, whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So I'm going to ask for a drink of water, small little cup, but then she's going to say, well, let me feed water all of your camels. 
Now, they estimate if these camels would have been, you know, at the end of their water supply, right, that they, she would have had to have made a hundred trips from the well to water the camels. So when he says, let it be that she's just going to voluntarily ask, I mean, this is, a, this is kind of a, it's a pretty good little test. Gideon did something like this. Lord, if you want me to go and fight, let the water, um, let the dew around the, the fleece be uh, uh, dry and then it'll be wet on the fleece. And then he reverses it and it happens and he knows he's called. Well, it's going to come to pass just the way he, Eleazar, has prayed. It's going to happen. He's going to ask for a drink. And Rebecca is going to say, hey, let me uh, take care of your camels as well. And so it was answered. So we have this way of seeking and trying to discern the way of the Lord through these fleeces, these kind of conditional circumstances that we set up. You don't have to raise your hand. I've tried this, and it has never worked for me. Now, I'm not, some of you would raise your hand and say, well, it's worked for me. And I'm not trying to diminish that, and I don't want to take away what, from what God has done. But every time I've done it, I've ended that prayer thinking, yeah, that's just the Lord's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not doing this, okay? You can say this and you can say that, but I'm not doing that. I'm just going to speak to you through the Spirit in your heart, and I'm going to guide you with my word, and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so one time that was memorable um, was when I was about to ask Rebecca to marry me. I was praying about this. It is her birthday today, by the way, so make sure you say happy birthday to her. Um, and we just celebrated 33 years of marriage nine days ago. So it was, I was about to ask her, well, we were dating. I was living in Australia. She was living in Southern California. Somebody in the church there had paid for her to come out on a vacation um, to Australia to be there at Christmas time. Great time to be in Australia is at Christmas time because their seasons are reversed. So it was a great, it was such a blessing. And while she was there, I'm like, I know she's the one I'm supposed to marry. I know. And I'm like, but should I do this now? I mean, I didn't have a job. I had no money. And when I said I had no money, I mean, like, I had no money. I had, well, actually, I had $350. And, um, <laughs> you know, and with that, I went and bought the most simple ring I could find. Um, so I ended up asking her while she was there. But... I was like, should I wait? Um, should I? I, you know, I didn't know if I was going to stay. Um, should I just wait till I get home? And so where we lived, occasionally we would have these most amazing birds, so colorful, they were called rainbow lorikeets. And they would, they would descend in the trees outside of the balcony where um, myself and my friend lived. And um, you could actually feed these things. There'd just like be dozens of them. They'd be all over, and you could feed them and stuff. And so... And they would just appear every now and then. And so I was praying, so you get an idea of where I'm going with my fleece. And I'm praying, and I'm just like, Lord, um, you know, I love her. I know she's the one. But if this is the time for me to do it, then um, I want to ask her before she goes back home. And so, Lord, if it's your will, I pray the rainbow lorikeets would, would show up before um, this prayer time is over. Amen. No rainbow lorikeets showed up. And I said, forget those lorikeets. I'm asking her anyway. <laughs> And so I asked her to marry me a couple of days later. And, um, and then a few days after that, they asked uh, me to stay and gave a stipend. And so the Lord was working it all out. But I'm just saying, you know, if the Lord works in that way in your life or has, fine. I'm just, I believe that the Lord wants us to be directed and led by him by listening to his spirit, being in prayer, and being guided by the word. He can step in and do things like that. 
but um, never has happened for me. It's always like, Troy, just listen to my voice. You don't need that. They didn't have the Spirit of God living in them. You have my Spirit living in you. Listen. And so that is the way I try to make my decisions. But the Lord gives success to his servants and when we seek his face. So he has this thing happen. It's just what he had asked for. Um, so he prays um, in verses 10 through 15, verses 16 through 21. Rebecca serves according to that petition that he put there. In verses 22 through 30, um, he responds by showing kindness to her. And he gives her a golden nose ring and a golden bracelet. I mean, is he trying to impress? Yes. It doesn't say it. But you don't travel with ten, ten camels and a bunch of servants and just happen to have gold rings and bracelets on you. I mean, essentially, he's going to, next scene, he's going to go to the house of Bethuel and Laban, um, her brother and father, and he's essentially, as he pulls up with the camels, it's like a U-Haul, and he's opening up and says, and this is all the stuff we have. Would you like your daughter to be a part of it? And he's, he's just he's showing the wealth. He's trying to impress. And we read that he came with the ten camels, and he was in control of all that his master had. And Abraham had a lot. So he showed up with the goods, and he wanted to make certain that he came back successful, and he will come back successful. Um, in verses 31 through 49, um, eventually um, he gets back to the house. Laban comes down to the wells. That's her brother, Rebecca, um, and says, hey, come to the house. And let's pick up at, well, let's pick up at verse 31. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house and he unloaded the camels and provide his straw and feed for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've told you about my errand. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. So they would have clearly known Abraham, right? And the Lord has blessed my master greatly. So he's going to then go on, and he's going to tell them about the vow that he made to Abraham. He's going to tell him about his prayer that he prayed. He's going to talk about what Rebekah did and how he is looking for a bride, and he wants Rebekah to be that one. So there's a lot of recounting that's going to happen in verses 31 through 49. But I love that phrase in verse 33. I will not eat until I have told about my errand. This past Wednesday night, when Jesus sent out the 70 to go into the villages of Israel and to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, he says, as you go, he says, I don't want you to even greet people on the road as you travel. Now we hear that and we think, well, that's kind of, kind of not even say hello. Well, long, drawn out, ancient Mediterranean greetings were something that could easily sidetrack you. He's not saying, don't say shalom. And move on. It's, it's like don't engage, get engaged in that long greeting that takes place because I've given you a job to do and I'm coming behind you. And the villages that you're going to, I'm coming behind you. So get into those villages as fast as you can. Proclaim the message. I'm coming behind and we're going to see what the Father's going to do. And it's that same kind of sense of urgency that Eleazar has as he goes. He says, no, no, no. I, I'm not going to eat. There's nothing wrong with eating. He just made... 
you know, 500-mile journey. I'm sure he ate along the way, but he's finally into a home. He's finally in a place where it can have a nice meal. And, and he's like, no, no, no. I've, I'm on a job. I'm, I have an errand that I am on. And I must know what your answer is. It's that same spirit that was in our Lord. John 4, 31 through 34. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Doesn't that sound like Eliezer? I've got a job to do. And I'm not going to get sidetracked. Yeah, I've got to eat. But the important thing, the urgent thing, is that I, that I do this. And this is an attitude that all of us should have as the children of the Lord, as servants of the Lord. Is that we are to be proclaiming the gospel. We are to be loving one another and serving one another, using our spiritual gifts to bring edification to the church. There should be a focus about our life that is sharp, so sharp that we, we like, I, I don't have time to eat. I don't have time to do that. I must be about the errand that has been given to me by the Lord. And too often we are weighed down by the cares of this life. I'm not even saying sin. That's a whole other category. But we just get caught up in living this life. And we have no time. We have no sense of urgency for the kingdom of God. Yet we don't know when Jesus is coming back, but he is coming back. And what he says is, I am coming, and what is with me? My reward is with me. He's looking to reward faithful, diligent service. And it's the kingdom of God that needs to be our focus. That's what should capture our attention. Family is great. You know, the country we live in, do something for the country. Great, if you serve in some way. Wonderful. We appreciate that. But what is most important? Well, let's just listen to our Lord again. But seek ye what? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Too often we get worried about seeking first all the things that will be added unto us. And once we get that done, then we'll focus on the kingdom. But those things are elusive when you seek them first because you can never get enough of them and they never seem to last. But the kingdom of God is the priority of the believer. And if that is not the priority, I just challenge you to recalibrate your life today. In verse 35, he speaks of his master's great wealth and certainly we know of the inheritance that we have. Ephesians 1.14 speaks of this great inheritance we have in Christ. And if you're like, well, I would like to come to the Lord, but I don't know what my life is going to be like. Well, we love to give Rebecca, our sister, to you, but we don't know what it's going to be like for her back in the land of Canaan. Oh, don't you worry. My, my servant, my master Abraham, he has gold, he has silver, he has large livestock, he has all kinds of servants, male and female. He has everything your daughter could ever want. And if that can be said of Abraham for Isaac, how much more truth is there for us when we come to Christ. Well, what's it going to be like when I come to Christ? Oh, it's going to be amazing. Your life's not going to be necessarily perfect and easy in this lifetime, but he's going to be with you through all of your trials, and he's going to give you peace, and he's going to give you joy, things you can't purchase with any amount of money. And you begin to walk in the inheritance of the Lord, and one day you will be in the presence of the Lord. 
and that city whose builder and maker is God. You will be in the presence of the Lord. So don't worry about it. Take that step of faith, just like Rebecca had to. So the betrothal takes place in verses 50 through 54, but in verses 55 through 61, um, they're saying, okay, now stay for a while. And Eliezer's like, no, no, we're not staying. Actually, we're almost ready to go. Well, you just got here, I know. But verse 56, he said to them, do not hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. And they said, well, we'll ask uh, Rebecca. And Rebecca says, let's go. I'm ready to, to go meet this guy. God's doing something. They all know. Even Laban says, well, God's at work here. They all know God's at work, and so they return. Again, that same kind of idea of not getting caught up, not being hindered in what the Lord has given you to do. Be faithful. Serve the Lord. Give Him your time. Give of your resources. Use the spiritual gifts that you have, and don't let anything hinder you from faithfulness. I didn't say serve the church. I said serve Jesus. You're serving the one who's redeemed you. If I'm too busy, then you are too busy. If you don't have time to serve the one that saved you, then you are too busy. And all I can ask you to do and exhort you to do as a brother in the Lord is recalibrate your life. You can't be so busy that you have no time for Jesus. We are followers of his. And we close there in verses 62 through 67 and we read of the marriage. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahoy Roy. That's where Hagar had called out to the Lord, and the Lord saw her, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when Isaac, and when she saw Isaac, she demounted from her camel, dismounted, came. To the, him, for she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother's, mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So great romance story here, right? Great story of love and how they came together. And um, so they become that, that line, that thin red line of redemption that's going through the Old Testament. It begins in Genesis 3.15 with a promise to Eve, right? Your seed is going to destroy the head of the serpent and his heel will be bruised. And so she had Cain and Abel. Abel gets killed. She's left with creepy Cain and she knows that's not the guy. And so it's like, well, then she has another child. It's Seth. Oh, then we go to the godly line of Seth. And then we go to Noah. And then we go to Abraham. And we wonder if it's ever going to have another person. But finally, Isaac is born. And now Isaac is marrying Rebekah. And that is that line of redemption that's going to go all the way to Mary when she gives birth to Jesus. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you're reading it at the beginning. But looking back with all the knowledge we have, it makes perfect sense. I want you to think about the day when you get to look upon Jesus. When you arrive to that place where you see the presence of the Lord and what a day it's going to be. Whether it's Him calling us up to meet Him in the clouds or it's us going up like Stephen and seeing Him there in that throne room and having the Lord greet us. 
and us being able to look upon him, that is really the highlight of this, this life and the next life that we're going to have is that first time when we get to set eyes upon our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth, Lord. I pray that you would allow the things that we've discussed and the ways in which your word speaks to us to touch our hearts.